Good morning. This is NPR News. I'm Chris Farrell, in for Angela Davis. You know, without enough water to feed livestock or keep the soil most moist, Minnesota farmers have been hit hard by the summer's hot, dry conditions. I mean, think about this number. 78% of the state is currently experiencing extreme drought conditions. And drought conditions have particularly affected Minnesota's cattle ranchers and dairy farmers. And small farmers, you know, often called micro-farmers, are weathering the drought without a safety net. So let's look at the state of agriculture in Minnesota during the drought. And we want to hear your stories, your experiences. I mean, you're a farmer. Tell us how the drought is affecting your business. If you live in rural Minnesota, you know, is the drought having an impact on you and your neighbors, the local economy? And later in the hour, we will be joined by Kathy Zeman, Executive Director of the Minnesota Farmers Market Association, and Jansen Hang, Executive Director and Co-Founder of the Hmong American Farmers Association. But first, let's take a... Let's get a broad overview of the state of agriculture in Minnesota, and we're joined by Tom Peterson. He's commissioner at the Minnesota Department of Agriculture. Welcome. Great to join you this morning, and wish we were talking about something else. But it's uh, I, you know it just uh, uh, you know just uh, just hearing hot, dry, humid for today. It's just uh, always a tough way to start the day, especially for all those farmers in Minnesota that are experiencing a tough uh, a tough year for sure. So when you're you know traveling around the state, I mean, what are you hearing from farmers? I mean, what are farmers telling you about the impact of the drought on their business? You know, it really boils down to, you did a nice job uh, summing it up. Um, you know, this drought has been hanging on for quite a while. You know, we could see it coming from the Dakotas. Um, we've been meeting as a department with our uh, farmers and stakeholders groups or congressional delegation for over two months, uh, looking for all the different things that we can do as a state, as a federal government, to get ahead of this. And But it really boils down to, like you're saying, is, you know, crop farmers, by and large, do have uh, crop insurance, and it does not make them whole at all, but it does provide enough of a safety net to help them get through the next year. Our livestock farmers just do not have that adequate safety net, um, and it is very troubling. I was up in the D4, the worst part of the D4 drought uh, two days ago and saw the worst pastures. I, I mean, it you know, it's been a one-two gut punch for our farmers up in that area because it's not just the lack of rain, it's the excessive heat that we've seen, um, and they just don't have the forest the hay to feed their livestock. They don't need a payment necessarily from the government. That's nice. They need they need the hay. They need the forage. They need uh, whatever they can feed cattle. Uh, and then our specialty crops, as you said, that that you know the the safety net isn't as much there for those. And so that's what we're really focused on. Uh, trying to find those solutions uh, for those farmers. But it's a very tough situation for a lot of our farmers, especially in northwest Minnesota, northeast, uh, west central. I mean, it's it's kind of all over. <laughs> so, so paint a picture for us. So when, when the farm community is in trouble or, you know, se- large sectors of the farm community are in trouble, how does that spill over into the rural economy? Well, it, it really, you know, spills over quickly. I mean, you take one cattle farm and you look at all the different things that that farmer uh, does and, and works with that community. I mean, what we're seeing is we're seeing a massive sell-off of uh, cows up in northwest Minnesota and in the, into the Dakotas, and uh, the cows are just gone off that farm. Uh, a lot of the average age of a farmer in Minnesota is 58 years old, and uh, it takes a lot of, you know, time and everything to... Um, take care of cattle. And, and our cattle farmers, these are 
you know, they may have uh, 30 to 200 cows. These are not, you know, necessarily large farms. These are a lot of what we call cow-calf operators um, that are selling off, and I'm afraid that we're just not going to have cows on those farms. But you think of the veterinarian, you think of the feed supply, you think of all the nutritionists, uh, everything that goes into that uh, local community when you have cattle. And cattle also are good for the environment. I mean, there's always a lot of things, but having pasture, having that uh, hay ground, uh, when we don't need the pasture and the hay ground, that could get converted to row crops. Um, and so it's, it's you know, it's it's really a tough situation. So, you know, we're working hard to keep that cattle on the on the ground and, Minnesota, and, and as well as you, as you mentioned, the specialty crops too, as well, is a big concern. So, is help on the way? I mean, um, earlier this month, right? I think Minnesota received seventeen and a half million dollars in federal aid, and is geared toward mitigating the effect of climate change. And Governor Walz said some of that money, at least some of that money, is going to go to the farm sector. You know, I, and, uh, you know, we did receive that, and I wish it was as easy as that. You know, the federal government puts a lot of parameters on on those dollars, and so we're looking at all the above, you know, whether it's a special session coming up here in September, whether it's a, a uh, American Rescue Plan dollars, you know, where can we get the dollars from to help uh, these farmers, and where can we, what are some of the things that we can do to help move uh, this situation? We have a drought webpage. A lot of it is just about connecting farmers with hay that's available. I think we have 12 different sites listed on our uh, webpage, right on the front page of the Minnesota Department of Ag website, where farmers can go and look for hay, look for forage. And so we're considering, are there things we can do? Because farmers are um, and, uh, are needing to water uh, crops, they're needing to buy wagons, they're needing to fence uh, other parts of portions. Um, we need uh, hours of service uh, relief for farmers that are moving hay and livestock across the state. Uh, and then actual, you know, assistance is another thing that may come from the federal government. So we're really encouraging farmers, too. They need to be talking to their local USDA office and being in and talking with them, documenting your losses, keeping receipts for things that you're spending money on that are drought-related so that if, if aid does come from the state or the federal government, we're able to reimburse that. And what about the longer-term policy adjustments? I mean, it looks like we are moving uh, into an economy where, you know, droughts may be the new normal. And so we got to get through this period. But how about how do you think farm policies should adjust to that droughts may be simply part of what we're living with? You know, Secretary Vilsack was here. That's a great question. Secretary Vilsack was here and spent two days in Minnesota last week. The governor and I were with him last Friday. You know, and one of the things Secretary Vilsack kept saying, and we're seeing, is that our farm policy, our last farm bill, things like that are not um, related to uh, the climate effects that we're seeing. We have to have programs that are more nimble, can adjust quickly. Uh, Just think about this. Two years ago, We were in an extreme flood situation in the same area as we're in an extreme drought area right now, 2019, two years ago. Um, Is this the patterns and things that we're going to keep seeing? Those programs have to be nimble and they have to adapt uh, so that we're able to help and keep our farmers uh, farming. And uh, that is something that we're going to have to look at, you know, as the as the temperatures have warmed, um, you know, nesting seasons have changed, uh, uh, you know, resiliency, uh, if just we have to build that in. And so there's a lot of great work going on in Minnesota. I think that it's easy right now to be real doom and gloom on everything. But 
I'm really encouraged by a lot of positive things that we have going on to address climate change, even within our agency and and, uh, and the administration. Well, uh, Commissioner, I'd like to uh, take a call from uh, Josie and Carlton. Um, yeah, so I, um, I'm i 24. I work on a farm in the Duluth area in Carlton, Minnesota, called Liker Acres. And we pasture-raise our uh, uh, 400 head of pigs and, like, 60 head of cattle. We're a pretty small operation, but we supply a lot of restaurants and, and grocery stores in town. And uh, two of the biggest struggles that we've met over the past year or so outside of the pandemic um, have been uh, increasing grain prices. Um, so we do a lot of our feeding on pasture, but we also supplement with grain and the increasing grain prices due to droughts in major uh, producing areas has been absolutely brutal. Um, I think our prices have almost doubled in the past year, and it was already our, probably our largest expense. And then the other thing is um, pigs can't sweat. <laughs> uh, sweat like a pig is pretty inaccurate. Um, so I have to be out there um, spraying them off, um, digging holes, and then filling them up with water, making sure that they have access to not just shade but also water. Um, in order to cool themselves off. So instead of my normal day looking like 9 to 3, uh, it, it's been a couple times where it's like 6 to 8. Like, um, so, wow. yeah, those, those are So you're really having to pay the price in terms of hours. Uh, yeah, and, and, and I'm happy to. Like, I love my job, but uh, it's just really hard to see the impact on the animals. And then also uh, rotational grazing. So we do uh, rotational grazing. Um, our goal is to build up to carbon sequestration. Um, so there's like a lot of science behind what, what we're doing, and it's it's been so inc- incredibly difficult. We weren't able to put our cattle on the pasture until extremely late in the year, and we actually had to graze them on our hay field. Um, so then later this year, we're going to have to buy more hay because we got one last cut of, of hay, and then hay prices are also incredibly high. So... Well, thank you so much for for calling in. And Commissioner, uh, are these the kinds of stories you're hearing? You know, I, let me just tell you something too. That, that you know, and that is exactly what we're hearing. And just to put this into perspective, where Waker Acres is in Carleton County, that's in a D1 or a moderate drought. Think about um, west of there is three times worse than that, and uh, and and so these levels that the that we're using with these drought monitors and everything, it is it is really. You know, I can't stress how bad it is in some parts of our state. And what the caller talked about was working longer hours. When the you're going to have Jansen hang on uh, here later today and talking or later this morning talking about our monk farmers. When we visited that last week, it's very similar to farmers working longer hours, um, having to do more, whether it's um, watering, really caring for those plants, and that stress adds to that farmer um, is just you know really uh, tough. And then the last thing too is. Farmers are making, you know, farmers are survivors. They, uh, you know, having done it myself and everything, you, you're creative. You have to be. But uh, farmers are making tough choices, whether I've been on farms in the last week that were five acres and farms that were 5,000 acres. And every farmer, it's it's very similar. They're making choices on where to cut back, uh, whether it's uh, letting uh, one area can't get water, one area you just are not going to be able to harvest. you got to make choices on this. And so very, very well represented in that call. So one last question before I let you go. The safety net. 
microfarmers really don't participate in the safety net. And yet when – now I live in, in St. Paul. Uh, but when I think about farmers and my farmer market and going to the farmer market, you know, the micro farmer is – uh, you know, incredibly important to at least my experience with the farm community. You know, it's extremely important, and and really they don't. There are some smaller programs. We have uh, like a non-insured crop program, um, but it is really important for those farmers, and we have language barriers. Think of all the different things that we have, you know, that we do get those farmers to help document their losses and that they go in and talk to the local USDA office. We've been working on that uh, uh, with our farmers, even at the state level, to help because the federal government is aware of this. We're trying to find ways to be able to help them. Uh, it's so important that people be patient and uh, shop and support those. You're going to see higher prices. You're going to see less product. Um, but the more our uh, people can help support that, we really they really appreciate it. But also just being patient with them right now. But we also are able to try to look and see um, – you know, and a lot of those smaller farmers are just not used to going in and uh, doing that. But, you know, if there is relief, they have to be able to document it. And we'll see if there are ways that we can be able to help them. Well, thank you much for taking your time. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. And fingers crossed for some rain. Yes. Tom Peterson is commissioner at the Minnesota Department of Agriculture. And now what I'd like to do is focus our conversation for the rest of the hour on small farmers, you know, there are probably, what, thousands of small farmers, also known as micro farmers in Minnesota, and many of them are Hmong, and many of these farmers. And NPR's Marcy Deklik recently reported on the micro farm sector, and let's listen to an excerpt. If you frequent farmer's markets, you've probably noticed vegetables have not been as plentiful as in years past. The timing has also been off. Some produce quickly came and went. Other veggies ran weeks late. Some, including onions and potatoes, are much smaller than usual. This year no good. This year really bad, yeah. Got no rain, too dry, and so hot, too. That's Tang Yang. He and his wife, Amphun Thor, grow vegetables on nine acres, less than a half hour south of St. Paul. We spoke at a farmer's market in a church parking lot in Falcon Heights. We got no water hole in the field of that. So we got about nine acres of that. So we had to put water on, on the top and go do it by hand of that. You've been watering nine acres by hand? Yeah, by hand of that. Water and come back to the top and do it again. That excerpt was from Mark Sedeckler's story, Micro Farmers Face Drought Without a Safety Net. And you can find his report on our website, NPR News. Org. And now I'd like to turn to our next guest. Kathy Zeman is executive director of the Minnesota Farmers Market Association. She is also the owner of Simple Harvest Farm Organics, which is outside of Nurstand, Minnesota. Welcome. Thank you. Glad to be here. Jason Hang is executive director and co-founder of the Hmong American Farmers Association based in St. Paul. And I'm glad you could join us. Thank you, Chris. It's an honor to be here. So, Jensen, the story we just heard from Mr. Yang, I mean, how common is that experience? Are you hearing stories like that again and again? Oh, absolutely. 
you know, um, currently Hoffa, we work, um, we have a farm that we manage, the 155 acre farm in Dakota County here. We work with over 100 among farmers uh, on the farm itself. And that is uh, the real struggle this year. Uh, farmers are expressing, and, and I physically see it, they are spending in, on average anywhere from 14 to 16 hours a day. Um, unlike Mr. Yang here on the Hoffa farm, we have actually put infrastructures in place here where they have access to irrigation. Um, however, the struggle is that even though they may have access to irrigations here, they are spending so much hours because they're only working with aerial irrigation, so they constantly have to shift their sprinkler system throughout a five or ten acre parcels. And think about that, and when they do that, they don't have time to actually tend to their crops here. So that reality is very true of all small-scale producers right now. And, you know, take a step back and what role, how important, you know, are the micro farmers, the small farmers to our communities? Oh, extremely important. You know, I mean, just in the state of Minnesota, we have over 340 farmers markets, right? And the majority of them are small scale, small scale or micro farmers, you consider them. Uh, of that, we have about 4,000 vendors all across the state here. And of course, if you know here, Chris, too, that in, in, the, in the Twin Cities metropolitan area, like 50% of the vendors in the Twin Cities farmers market, the main market, Minneapolis, also St. Paul, are made up of Hmong farmers. Yes. So they are extremely vital to our local food economy, right? Um, you know, providing to over 300,000 communities or residents here in the Twin Cities metropolitan area. So they are extremely critical to our local food economy and you know because of the drought the lack of produce here you know it's not that the market isn't there like it was last year here but the lack of produce the lack of resources here they're taking a big hit and kathy what has been your experience on your farm well i i think i'm just you know a survivor's guilt down here because in my area i'm in rice county and so we're like in d2 um i also serve on the rice county Soil and Water Conservation District Board, and uh, our district manager just notified us that we've got like half the rain that we need, that we usually get in an average year, but we are not doing that bad. Early on, I'm just like Wiker Acres, uh, early on I sacrificed some pastures because there was, nothing was growing and we had to, we had to screw up our rotation to get them out there. Um, to, and But we did get in first crop hay this year, with no rain on it, which never happens, ever. You always get first crop uh, rained on. So my farm is not doing bad, but then we've been rotating, you know, doing rotational grazing for, right. you know, over a decade. And that is kind of one of those regenerative practices that we always say will handle climate chaos better. Um, but again, my farm is a hard farm to, to base that on this year because we're, you know, we're just in a D2 drought situation. And so Not what as bad as most of the upper, you know, northern... Minnesota. No, okay. So that, yeah. So what are you seeing in the farmer's markets? It is a mixed bag. We've got, you know, in Southeast Minnesota, there's, you know, there's over a hundred and some farmer's markets and they're doing okay. Um, early on, people flooded to farmer's markets because they were so tired of, you know, not being able to do anything last year because of COVID-19. Right. But even down there, crops are coming in, just like Jansen said, crops are coming in. Um, smaller, late, or not at all, uh, and and less, and they, they're turning around qu more quickly. I uh, we do know, like in northern Minnesota, farmers markets had crops that didn't even show up. Like Virginia farmers market said they had no berries this year, but that might have also been so. This year in, in produce, you really got tagged with those late frosts too. Um, 
while those late that late frost in May was really hard on some of our berry farmers in northern Minnesota to the fact that they were up at midnight to two o'clock in the morning spraying berries with water to try to keep them from being frosted and droughted out. We, you know, we had a report of one of the an unheated greenhouse that should have been able to handle it, but they lost like 300 tomato plants. So it, it's a, this year has been incredibly hard on our smaller farmers just because it was frost and drought. And then the heat, even in northern Minnesota, uh, which I always think is cooler, um, we had reports of pepper plants. Um, a lot of farmer, a lot of produce farmers will put down a landscape fabric or plastic to help with weed suppression. And the roots under the plants got too hot and just fried them. So, again, it was really, it's been a tough year. So farmers markets are up and running and produce is there. I would recommend to people, you know, get get there early because um, we might not have quite as much as we normally would have had. Even following last year, when when we had a lot, we we discovered forty new farmers markets in southeast Minnesota, and we're standing up another five this year because people learned during COVID nineteen that short supply chains are pretty resilient, and so if we can grow our own produce in our own backyards, then that helps us sell those at farmers markets. So, in that case, um, we're doing a little bit better. And Justin, um, you know, looking at the effect that the that the drought is having. You know, is it exposing, is it highlighting, is it showing uh, inequities that seem to be embedded in our existing systems and institutions? Absolutely, Chris. And it does, you know. We, I mean, we know that, you know, these days there's always been safety nets for all agricultures, right? But the biggest thing is that, you know, um, agri- all agricultures mean more so commodity crops um, than micro farmers here. So there's definitely there's no safety nets for micro farmers, and and if there was here, especially through Florida federal programs, USDA, um, the NAPS program was the non-insured crop disasters program here. Um, the system is not created to really support small scale mixed producers because uh, the paperwork, the administrative component of it is so laborious here. Um, for example, here they have this NAP program for commodity crops uh, for someone who is growing, you know, acres and acres, thousands of acres of corns and beans here. It's so easy for them to navigate the system. But for someone who is like a micro farmer or a monk farmer who on five acres grows over 60 varieties of crop and they have to document every single crop that is being grown here from, you know what, one one hundredth of acres to one eighth of an acre it's just so much work on top of this also language barriers so it, it has been truly a struggle yeah and kathy are you seeing any movement to change this situation yes i i, I do but it's it's like we're the little annoying mosquito that keeps buzzing around right <laughs> trying to get everybody's attention so Little egg in Minnesota, when you start looking at little egg, so this would be non-subsidized farmers and farming operations that don't receive federal payments. We're like a billion-dollar industry in Minnesota. Um, And our really, the only safety nets that we have are our neighbors. Uh, But but because of COVID-19, we have come up with this group called the Local Food Producers Resiliency Work Group. Worst name ever. I can't even remember it most times. But this is a group of all of us. <laughs> I've already forgotten it. So there you go. Right? It's like blah, blah, blah. But it's this group of all of us little little organizations. We're fragmented, but we're the ones that are holding up little egg, right? And we got together. And so we have all year long identified the big problems and have pushed them to – and some of our members are from Minnesota Department of Agriculture. So we've got a really good relationship with our Department of Agriculture 
Uh, and we're just trying to figure out how to get around that. So for the first time ever in legislation this year, MBA was given um, $25,000 for translation services. Okay, so that money came available August 1st, and I'm pretty sure it'll be done by August 31st, right? Because we have a tremendous need in this country, in our state, to get most of our, our programs that are available um, into different languages, because that's where our new farmers are. Uh, yeah. And we, we've talked right now about crop insurance, but, you know, I'm not a crop farmer. I'm a grass farmer, and I raise livestock. There is no safety net for small-scale lamb, goat, pork, cattle, meat rabbit, turkey, duck, goose, chicken, nothing. Your, our safety net are literally our neighbors who support us by buying product from us at our farmer's markets, at our food co-ops, you know, at our, our small restaurants. That's our safety net. Two years ago, we had two farmers in our area that got hammered with hail. Produce farmers, uh, kind, of, kind of big. They're over 10 acres. We did, there was no crop insurance for them. Again, what Jansen said, that crop insurance program doesn't really fit. So we literally did GoFundMe drives. Hmm. So that's our safety net for small ag. We do GoFundMe's. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It, yeah. All right. Let's... I always call it that systemic inequity, right? The, the, the system is just based on a lot of inequity. And it, it definitely goes toward the commodities that are in national and international um, trade. And that on the local level, uh, we, there's not a lot there to support the safety net. And yet this is a very robust industry. Yeah. So, um, so let's go to Richard and Richard, you're in central Minnesota. Yes. Yes. Um, I farm with my dad. We do about 500 acres of corn and soybeans. Um, we're kind of in the D three drought area, so it's pretty dry. Um, you know, we're kind of hoping rain this weekend, but we'll see. Um, yeah, we're, we're expecting at least 50% reduction in yield on uh, our corn and soybeans and maybe even worse in some cases, which we might end up having to chop, have the corn just chopped for silage because there's not really going to be anything there. Um, but we, you know, I kind of wanted to say that, um, you know, my dad and my uncles have been farming for a while, you know, they remember 1988. <laughs> and so... We were kind of almost anticipating this because 2019 was so wet, and they said generally following an intense wet, there's going to be a drought that kind of follows behind it. Um, and we kind of see every 10 years there's a minor drought, and every 50 years there's a big drought, and every 100 years there's a huge drought. You know, think of the 30s. It was a couple years on the Dust Bowl, and in 1988 was about 50 years ago. That was a pretty bad drought. Uh, it only lasted about a year and a half. Um, in 2012, was a, was a drought, and so I kind of wonder if if we're following that same pattern. And you know, we're we're kind of anticipating longer growing seasons. Um, you know, that's something because of that weather we change, see. climate change. Because of yeah, because because of weather change, I'm, I'm anticipating that. Um, but I think this drought kind of is falling in line with expectations. It's been 50 years since we've had a a big drought. So I'm just kind of curious if, uh, if other people think the same thing. Yeah. And, um, but I do wonder, do you see, is your, um, do you find that the weather patterns are changing more frequently now? Um, it's hard to tell exactly, but yeah, it seems like the, the rains, when they come, they come a lot heavier, you know, five inches of rain is not, is not strange anymore and it kind of probably was so 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 yeah it it can be more um, okay. how do you say it you know it comes more aggressive 
more aggressive. Okay, we're volatile. Yeah, more um, volatile. Yeah, that's the right word. So, uh, Jensen, I'm curious in terms with your work with Hoffa, you know, thinking ahead, looking down the road. I mean, you got to get this is a tough period, and it's always I don't want to minimize what's going on now at all, but looking ahead, thinking about periods of drought. Um, are there things that you can do to sort of uh, plan for the future? I mean, I think the biggest thing is, you know, how do you mitigate climate changes, right? And this is something that Hoffa has always been promoting and heavily, um, you know, let's stress this uh, to all of our farmers is, you know, how do we con- combat climate changes, especially as a crop farmer? Um, and that would be through the use of a high tunnel system, um, where it's a smaller unit, it it's very productive, but it's also a controlled climate, so you can easily water it um, and maintain your crop in there. That's definitely one solution right there. And we continue to express this to our farmers, and many of our farmers are transitioning here from field production to more high tunnel production as well, too. Granted that we are always at the anticipation of the mercy of you know, support from NRCS and through their EQUIP program and cost share program as well. Um, I know that over the course of the couple of years here, you know what, um, the criteria is application process has been more rigorous. Um, so accessibility to those funding is not as easily accessible as it was previously as well. Okay. So let's go to Ruth from Carlton. Ruth, what is your observation? Well, uh, we do micro farming. Uh, we also, along with our UPIC blueberry farm, and what we found is that um, we had trouble with our wells. We have two wells. One went dry, and the other one um, is struggling. We do have a high tunnel that we are able to um, drip line, irrigate, but out in the vegetables, a lot of them are being watered by hand, which is very difficult and very strenuous and stressful. And so what, what kind of, so you're, you're a micro farmer, and what kind of vegetables do you grow? Well, all the all the good Minnesota vegetables. All the all the all the classics. Okay. Yeah, all the classics. Um, we have the asparagus, um, and we also have things like kohlrabi and rutabaga, which some people don't grow, uh, but otherwise it's the standard. And so, yeah, it's it's been a tough tough season. So, did, how are you? What do you plan on doing? How how are you going to get yourself through this? Well, my daughter did contact uh, federal programs, seeing if we could get help with uh, improving our wells or getting another well, and there was no programs available for the farm of our size, which was really discouraging for anybody trying to get into taking care of the country and the earth and small spaces. No, thank you so much for for calling in. And Kathy, any um, reaction to what Ruth was saying? Yeah, it makes my heart hurt, right? Yeah. Um, no. I do know that in our NRCS, so that's the USDA, the Natural Resource Conservation Services, I think that's correct, has a program called EQIP, Environmental Quality Incentives Program. And they do have money available in this and this tiny program called that you that would be able to drill a well, and that does. So I knew about it first because of the cattle farmers, 
Um, the, you know, in the last drought, a couple of cattle farmers got a well drilled for free with between the equip and the federal coming in. So I did ask NRCS, and Aaron confirmed this morning that, yeah, those wells are available even for produce farmers. Now, again, if you think about little ag, so all of us small farmers, We've never really walked into that FSA office. We don't. So that's a Farm Service Agency office. It's the old ASCS, if you know those those mm-hmm. acronyms from decades ago. It, so we don't have a farm number. And so this process of getting at getting into our offices and getting us um, signed up. And there are times that we still get that comment like, well, you're not a real farmer. Even though we farm and we produce a lot of food, but because we're not well documented anywhere, and that's not just our, our BIPOC farmers, that's white farmers too. That mean if you're in little ag, we are not well documented. So um, in Ruth's case, if she wants to reach out, NRCS Equip does have money for wells. I just don't know how big their farm is. And, and besides that, we should get this information in because then we can change the system, right? The system needs to change and be much more agile. And because if you think about our emerging farmers, you know, a lot of our farmers in Minnesota are my age. We're old, 63 and over. We're white, and but our emerging farmers are young and BIPOC and very diverse. I mean, MDA's got the Emerging Farmers Work Group uh, report out. So that's, that's our future. Our future, we need to look at. So our legacy systems that are holding up our, you know, our legacy farmers, we need to shift some of those dollars now and our programs and look at the future of Minnesota farming. That's where we need to put some support to grow them. Otherwise, we are going to be looking at thousands and thousands and thousands of acres in Minnesota that uh, need to shift hands here in the next few decade or so. And we don't see a really good pathway right now to get that done and to get it into our emerging farmers' hands. But in Ruth's case, there might actually be help, and I can help try to connect her with her equipped people. Okay, that's great. And Jensen, I wonder, do you get that expression, uh, you're not a real farmer? Oh, all the time. You know, that's always seems the case. I mean, there's all these USDA programs, especially for microloans, NAPs, that we walk our farmers into the FSA office and everything else, right? They would recognize our farmers here into these programs here um, to say, oh, yeah, we're dispersing funds to, you know, immigrant minorities, socially disadvantaged here. But when it comes down to, like, say, like the IDO programs that came out last year, many of our farmers or all of our farmers were not able to access these because, oh, well, you don't have a schedule. Lab. Oh, well, you don't have the proper documents. You don't have the ledgers. You don't have these X, Y, and Z, whatever the reason may be here. So our farmers were not able to access any of those federal dollars last year, even though they're utilizing these very same programs that USDA has been created to support small-scale producers. And so what your farmers are doing is simply putting in more, more and more hours to survive. Mm-hmm. That's that's the response, is that, that they're not getting the help, so they're just going to put in more hours. That is absolutely true, right? I mean, they're putting more hours to survive. The majority of our farmers, or all of our farmers, their livelihood derived from their farm business operations here. So they are at the mercy of Mother Nature's and crops and whatever to help them and support them. I mean, unlike last year, I mean, of course, last year we had covid Right. And so we knew that, oh, well, you know what? Markets were going to be down. Um, we knew that, you know, we we're going to still have just an abundance of varieties of produce and everything else. But this year, even though the markets are stable, the produce is not there to support them. Many of our farmers are not going to a farmer's market because of lack of produce. Even though a farmer's market is still so vibrant 
and just, you know, kind of recouping from COVID and everything else, that right now, because of lack of produce, our farmers are going to, on average, a two to three market out of a seven day, which in previous years, they would go to seven day markets. So you think about like, oh, wow, the amount of revenue that's being generated here when you only go to three markets or two markets yeah. as opposed to seven markets. Yeah, that's a real hit. Um, let's go to Ann in southwest Minnesota. Ann? Yes. So what is your comment? My comment is is that um, I'm really concerned about the poor agricultural tiling practices that go on. Uh, I own a small um, agricultural um, land farm, and um, I've been telling my county people that um, it's not that good to tile as much as they do, and they've been telling me inaccurate information. Um, Tiling used to be good at one point when it first started, but in the later years now, it's been a bad practice. So so uh, very quickly define tiling. Tiling is when they um, go in and dig a trench in the land, I don't know, maybe about two feet deep or three feet deep, and they put in a plastic tube, and then what that tube has is a bunch of holes in it, and what happens is when it rains, then that water goes right into that tube, and it flushes it really quickly down through that tube out into a ditch, and then the ditch will eventually go to a stream, and the stream then consolidate, and that's when you get all your flooding. Got it. Okay. And so, so you feel that this is a practice that, you know, we need to pull away from. It is, because um, what it's doing is when you get those torrential rains um, now, um, it's making the flooding a lot worse. And then when you don't have the rains, you want your aquifers to kick in. And with them flushing all the water quickly downstream, the aquifers are not able to replenish. So then you're depleting your aquifers. And then when they don't get rain, then they want to irrigate. And so they're depleting those those aquifers even more okay. than the water source. All right. Well, and thank- then they want money afterwards. <laughs> it has something that they cause. <laughs> well, thank you very much for calling in. I really appreciate it. And let's go to Steve in Millerville. Steve, what is your observation? Well, I'd like to say a lot of the observations have been uh, spot on. Um, the climate variability in the beginning of the year, um, the early lettuces bolted and the cabbages and broccolis came in early. Um, we're picking our September beets right now. We're real fortunate. I worked in the USDA office um, and was able to get involved in their programs. I've been a micro farmer for over 10 years now. So we do have some good sprinkler systems, um, and we're able to get a lot of our crops to come when a lot of people at the market didn't get their carrots to come, didn't get their beets to come. The heat in the soil um, just didn't allow the water to terminate the seeds. It was a, a terrible year. It heated up so early. You had spikes of heat and then spikes of cold. A lot of plants don't take that well. So I was able to get a loan. I do have high tunnels, um, and we've built a lot of resiliency into our farm. And we've done okay this year because there is a lot of people that have less product at the market. Um, we did burn out a well, which, you know, that is, that, that's a major chunk of what would have been our profit for the year. Um, mm. As they mentioned, with that loan from USDA, 
Um, they did require to carry the insurance. Um, each of my raised beds, 212 beds, was mapped as a separate field. Um, the administrative component of that on a small farm was just unmanageable. Um, and then even with online sales documentation and uh, farmer's notebook documentation, I was deemed to have inadequate documentation and they were going to call my loan, but I was able to get a waiver. So, um, And you used to work for the USDA. <laughs> I used to work in the office there and uh, know the folks and know the programs. So, yes, fortunately, I was able to demonstrate that um, even if I did have a disaster, the payments I would get were less than the insurance was costing me, um, and it was not helping them get paid. Okay. Well, thank you so much for, for calling in. And Kathy and, and Jensen, I mean, and what Steve was just saying, um, a theme that has emerged is that there is a documentation system that evolved for large farms and has not adjusted to small farms or the micro farms. So that seems to be a major theme, right, Kathy? Absolutely. That's, you nailed it. it. It is a system. So all of their input forms that they send out to us really are just coming from commodity. So commodity farms sell widgets, right? Corn is corn is corn is corn, right? Soybean is soybean is soybean is soybean with very little product differentiation. But in little ag, we have millions of product differentiation. And so the, the system doesn't fit us and it needs to shift and shift rapidly. And that's why we're here to help them get that change made. Yeah. And Jensen, how... What would you like to see in terms of, of the change? Is it simplification? Is it what what do you think would work um, better for you? One definitely simplifications here. Um, definitely that's something here. So if I was uh, so as, as a micro farmer here, if I'm growing sixty varieties crop but I only want insurance for five, that's all I need to report on. I don't need to report on all other, you know, at 55 varieties of crop as well, too, to comply with this. Um, that would be one thing here. Two is definitely one thing that I commonly see, especially over the last decade here, around the Hmong American Farmer Association. Every single time we step into the ASDA office, you know, there is no person of, of color there or a person that who is representative of their communities. And language barrier has always been a challenge, especially when it comes down to filling in the application to submitting a claim, submitting the crop map, you know, and so that HAFA as an entity here that we would have to support our farmer through that whole process. And every single time we bring this to, you know, either our local FSJ office or they're like, well, we're limited in funds. We don't have the capacity to do X, Y, and Z. And therefore, you know, we would hope that you continue to do your due diligence and your service to your constituents. And like, that's not the role of our organization. We're here to kind of build the capacity of our farmers to provide. Yeah. Like this direct service all the time, especially when you had these federal agencies here in government to do that. That's right. Yeah, exactly. I want to go to um, Helen from central Minnesota. Helen, and what kind of f farmer are you? Um, we have horses. And um, while I understand that your program is focusing on agricultural products for human consumption and for uh, cows and pigs yeah. and and everything else. Um, the horse industry is huge in Minnesota, absolutely humongous. And uh, we have eight horses ourselves. We have eighty four acres at this farm, um, but we are we also make hay. My husband rents about three hundred and twenty, or we have about three hundred and twenty acres that we make hay off of. Any 
anywhere from metagrass hay to part alfalfa. It's so bad in our community that we've got a dairy farmer and a beef farmer who are asking us to buy hay from them. And we're saying, you know, we have eight horses we need to feed. We have two, at least two or three customers that are, you know, we've had for years. And we're trying to honor the prices that we quoted them before of, say, $40, $45 a bale. And yet we can take hay to the auction in Litchfield or Sock Center uh, and get $94 a bale for a four-by-five-foot round bale shrink-wrapped uh, that's tested and weighed and everything. Um, so double the and price. It's a struggle for us too. You know, it, I'm, we've we've sold hay at the same auction first and only gotten seventeen dollars a bale. This earlier this spring we got sixty four, and I believe that was for hay from last year. And this year we sold it for ninety four dollars a bale. And you know, it's I feel bad for all the, you know, the dairy and the and the cow and the pig and, you know, every other industry out there. But I don't want people to lose sight that, you know, the horse industry in Minnesota is huge and we're also suffering. And so in terms of, you know, looking ahead for your industry, so how will you adjust or will you adjust uh, your your practices with your horses in the coming year as you adjust to the to the drought? So what impact honest, will it have on I your business? Know. Yeah, it's it's um it's huge. I you know, when you've got a dairy farmer who is begging for hay and a and a um a beef farmer who is asking to cut hay off of our fields, then we don't have a product to sell and we don't have a product to feed our own horses and you know, some people would say, well, why do you have eight horses? You don't need eight horses. We have a retirement farm here. You know, we have several old horses that are no longer able to be ridden. We have some young horses that we're bringing up. Um, we do not breed horses here. So my easy, an easy answer to the question would be to tell the backyard breeders to stop breeding their horses because there's plenty out here. <laughs> um, unfortunately, I think some people will end up, you know, putting their horses in an auction and that can have very, that your results for sure. the horse. So. Uh, boy, it's well, thank you so much for calling in. Uh, and, you know, I do hope things get better. You know, we're running, we're get running pretty close to the end of our time here. So, um, Jensen, I want to ask you, what would you really want the listener to know about the Hmong farmer dealing with the drought situation? Great question. You know, Chris, I think the biggest thing is I just want the general public to understand that the drought is real, um, that it has a, a severe or huge impact on our farming communities, not just among communities, um, but for all communities, our, our small scale producers here. Um, but the biggest thing with the Hmong farming community is the fact that, you know what, there's a language barrier, there's a lack of resources that they're able to access. And with that then said here that, you know what, we really need to create, um, have system change. You need to have system change, and I would encourage everybody to continue to support your small-scale mixed vegetable producers, uh, continue to support your Hmong producers here, um, to creating more equitable access, as well as to really support them and their livelihood. Um, as farming is, you know, their primary source of income to support their families here. 
Um, so I'd encourage all you guys to do that, um, to support them at the farmer's market, um, either or um, support the Hmong American Farmers Association. Um, that's why we exist for. We exist to support our farmers um, and create more equitable access for Hmong farmers in the Twin Cities metropolitan area. Well, thank to both of you. This has been a great conversation, and I really appreciate it. Kathy Zeman is executive director of the Minnesota Farmers Market Association. She is also owner of Simple Harvest Farm Organics. Jason Heng is executive director and co-founder of the Hmong American Farmers Association. You've been listening to a recording of a live radio show on NPR News. You can hear Chris Farrell, Brent Williams, Catherine Richard, and other guest hosts during a live call-in show at 9 a.m. weekdays throughout the month of August. Looking for Carrie Miller? She's back talking about books and ideas at 11 a.m. every Friday starting September 10th. Thanks for listening.